You are listening to Read It, Roll It, Hole It. He's two putts from victory. Only needs one. Hey everybody, it's Tom here from Warwick House Golf, proud sponsors of the Read It, Roll It, Hole It podcast. Use code RRH10 for 10% off at warwickhouse.golf. Welcome golfers to the next episode of the Read It, Roll It, Hole It podcast. I am really excited to be back. We've had a few months off um, due to time of the year and lots of things going on, but we are back and we've got some wonderful guests lined up for you over the next few weeks and coming months. So really hope you enjoy. Please do share the love and uh, share the podcast with your friends, family, fellow golfers, whoever you think uh, might be interested to uh, to listen. So uh, I really appreciate the support. Just a, um, a brief update on what's going on at Leap Putting Hub. We, uh, we're still running down at Tickenham. We're down there four or five days a week. Um, face-to-face coaching is available there. Please do in- get in touch if you're interested. I also do offer some online coaching. So if you're listening from a long way away from Bristol or from Solihull, which is where I also coach, please do get in touch. We do love an online lesson um, and there's different options available. So do get in touch. Without any further delay, please may introduce my next guest to this week's, uh, this week's podcast, Nikki Grist. Welcome to the podcast, Nikki Grist. Hi, Ollie. How are you doing? Everything all right? Very well, thanks, Nikki. Good. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, not bad, not bad. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Really looking forward to uh, this conversation today, Nikki. We're um, we've known each other for a while now, um, on and off the golf course, and um, yeah. A big passion of ours is uh, golf and motorsport, mm. so we really yeah. click and we get on well. So I'm looking forward to sharing some of the stories uh, with the listeners today. Yeah, no, there's there's always plenty of stories along the way. Uh, there'll be a lot of stories I can't tell you, of course, but um, they'll probably go with me to the grave. I want to know those stories. Yeah. All right, okay. Well, I'm not going to share it in public, so sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what I'll get out of you now. So for those of you listeners who don't know uh, Nikki, I'll give you a bit of a uh, a bio rundown. So Nikki is known as one of the best co-drivers that's sort of uh, been in the game in rallying. Um, over, I've got 21 wins, Nikki. Yeah, that that's one? right. That's right. Yeah. The, um, the sort of famous drivers that will, uh, well, the listeners may have heard of was uh, Kankinen and Colin McRae. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and you won the uh, the world championship with Kankinen in 1993. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was some year. That was yeah. Some so, year. Yeah. Tell us about uh, tell us about that year then, Nikki. Well, as it was, I started off the year with another driver. Um, you know, I turned professional in 1990 just to give people a bit of a background. And I kind of came up from driver to driver and team to team. And, you know, I ended up at the end of 92 with nothing to do. And, and the team manager of Toyota at that time asked me to join a German driver, Armin Schwarz. So um, I was actually contracted to Mitsubishi at the start of 1993 albeit a very small program um, in the World Championship. I think we had seven rallies together. Uh, that's all. 
but I did have some negotiations at the start of the year to join Yuha, which all fell apart, and he stuck with his his current co-driver, which was fine. You know, it was all very amicable. So off I went rallying with um, with Armin Schwarz, and, and you know we had some half reasonable results, and it was it was pretty good. And you know I was just lying in my bed one morning, and my manager rang me up and said, "Hey Nick," he said, "How do you fancy you know doing Argentina?" And I thought to myself, "Hang on, Mike, hasn't Argentina already started?" He said, "Well, yeah, they're they're in the reconnaissance now." I said, all right, what's the story then? And he said, well, listen, it's not good news. Juha Kankinen's co-driver had had a brain hemorrhage overnight in his room in a place called Villa Calaspas in the middle of Argentina. And listen, Juha really wants you to go out and join him. I said, well, that's fine. I have no problem with that. I said, what about, um, what about my contract? He said, don't worry. He said, I've already started the ball moving. He said, um, he said, I think you've just got to prepare and, you know, get your bags packed and get ready to go, um, you know, because possibly it could be a dash at the airport. So I thought, my God, this is brilliant. I mean, you are at that time was already a three times world champion. And here's me, a complete WRC non-rally winner. And... Um, you know, it all started from Argentina, which was uh, late May, I think it was. So anyway, come 11 o'clock, it was all done, all sorted. Um, and I had to be up in Heathrow at two o'clock to catch a flight. And so I went and met the wife in work and met her in the car park and give her a kiss and a cuddle. And that was it, darling. Bye. I'm off now. And I was going to do two rallies. I was going to go Argentina and straight to New Zealand, you see. So I said, I'll be back in about something like seven weeks time. So this was like a dream come true, all of this, you could imagine. So, you know, a three-time world champion was the pinnacle, really. So I flew, to, I drove up to Heathrow and I, I basically went to... Um, got my plane ticket and I flew from from there to, to Paris, picked up my next ticket in Paris, which was Aerolineas Argentinas to Buenos Aires. And I looked at the ticket, first class ticket even. Wow, I must have really made it. And so I flew first class and I tried to make the best of the Krug champagne and all the rest of it, but didn't, uh, it didn't dabble too much in that. But I arrived you know, early the next morning in Cordoba, where you were, was waiting for me. And, you know, fortunately for you, Pirin and his co-driver, you know, he had a, a serious uh, brain hemorrhage, but one of the best brain surgeons in the world is based in Cordoba uh, Hospital, which was something like 20 kilometers down the road from, from the hotel. So, you know, U.R. Piranen did survive, although that was the end of his career. But it meant that, you know, U.R. and I sort of struck up a relationship straight away. And, you know, off we went into the rally and having rushed round the stages to do our pre-reconnaissance, um, flew up to a place called Tucumán in the north of Argentina and where the start was in the first stage. And we 
won that first stage of the fastest on there. So all of a sudden now, I'm leading my first ever world championship rally. But from that point to the end of this rally, we never lost the lead. And all of a sudden, I'd won my first world championship event in Argentina. I was, wow, I couldn't believe it. Brilliant. So, you know, and, and off we went, really. We went to New Zealand, uh, flew all the South Pole and, and did new Rally of New Zealand, which was a tremendous experience. Never been there before. Um, the next round was in Finland, but I wouldn't be released from my contract at that point by Mitsubishi. So I had to go back and do it with, with Armin Schwarz, the German driver. But then you had already started negotiation with the team and he actually bought out my contract. And then I joined UHA full time. And we went on and had a string of really good results. One rally Australia. And then we came back to do Wales Rally GB or Network QRAC, it was called at the time. And it was bitterly cold, really icy and snow and really, really tricky conditions. And you know, Juha, coming from Finland, as you can imagine, drove a brilliant rally. So to cap off the year, you know, we won my home round of the World Championship as well. So, you know, it was just like a whirlwind, you could imagine. Absolutely. That must have been hell of an experience sort of to, you know, land on your feet there, I guess, really. I don't mean that being, you know, well, you sort of become his co-driver by accident, if you like, or by, you know, the, the, the poor chaps having his uh, brain hemorrhage. But yeah, how, sure. did, uh, how did that, you know, you must have felt out of your depth at that time. How did you no. deal with the, the emotions of that? Yeah, no, I, I didn't I didn't feel I, I struggled at that point. I mean, I had confidence in my ability and I was able to react to it. But I have to say that Yuha made it very easy. And, you know, he was such a laid-back character. He was obviously extremely experienced. And, you know, if he was one of these nervous characters, it would probably have been a bit tougher for myself. But, you know, he had such a lot of confidence in his ability. He'd won so many rallies. He'd won three championships already. He actually made it much easier for myself. And... You know, to be honest, I, I didn't think twice about it. And, you know, just to start that first stage and win it, win God knows how many stages through Argentina and then ended up winning it, our first event, you know, I was settled in straight away. And, and that, for me, was really the start of, you know, the serious years of my rallying career, really. Brilliant. We'll definitely mm. come back to the sort of, the next phases of your career but just want to uh, to go back a few few years before the rallying started um mm. we i know you're a keen golfer and uh for your sins you're the the captain of rolls of monmouth this year Is yeah that yeah right next year next year 2023 yeah brilliant good well i hope you have a good uh, a good year and i'm looking forward to the rally stage captain's charity day hopefully well yeah yeah that's it's good I think we're quite lucky at the Rolls because it's it's a bigger state, but there's a fantastic stage right through the middle of it with a couple of forest sections and gravel finishing on the tarmac by the big house. And fair dues to Linda, the secretary of the event. She said, yeah, she said, I'm sure that'll be fine. So 
um, yeah, Captain's Charity Day will be a bit different with cars flashing across on a gravel track across the fairways. I don't, I, can't uh, I don't, I, can't I don't wait. think it'll be, I don't think it'll be many Captain's Days quite like that. I don't think. Are you going to let me drive your Sleeker? No, that's that's a, that's a little too far. That is, I, I don't know whether <laughs> I can trust you with that. But I don't think I'll be using my Celica, actually. Um, you know, I have such an affinity with Toyota winning my first rally in one and stuff. But my car, I probably will not be able to use that day because it's a pure tarmac car. So it's too low. And the tires are not suitable. So I'll probably just put it on display that day. And, and Fair enough. You, I'll, I'll let can you, I drive around I'll the car park? Yeah, around the car park. I'll let you maybe I'll let you sit in the the driver's seat at least. So. Thank you. That's cool. So yeah, going back to uh, you know being a keen golfer and and throughout today's sort of session, we're gonna certainly see if we can see similarities between top athletes in rallying or golf and the similarities of the mental side, uh, the preparation side, all all that sort of you know it's a four day competition all that sort of stuff we're, we're going to go into. Um, but I just wanted to go back to your early years, because actually before rallying, you decided to be a PGA. Did you turn pro or you were going no, to? No, I, I was just a system pro. So I hadn't actually qualified at that point. But yeah, that was my first job, really. Um, you know, and, and I was only a young kid. I left school early. I didn't... Uh, I didn't want to do any A-levels, anything like that. I just left school and, and I just went straight into the golf. And, you know, at that time, it wasn't, you know, very well paid. I think my first wage was £15 a week, I think, or something. Um, you know, but that was my first passion. But it was rallying that actually I went to watch a local event, just a thing called the Road Rally, which passed very close to the golf club. Um, and it was after a, an engagement party and we went to watch locally and then went to another place to watch it and another place and another place. Ended up 5, 5.30 in the morning at the Finnish Hotel in AOY. And I thought, my God, I never knew this, this was going on locally. I, I had no idea. And it was a real buzz. And, you know, I kind of got into it from that. Uh, and my interest in rallying became far greater to the point that working at the golf club on the weekends was getting in the way of it all. So I, I gave up that job at the golf club and, and just went into the motor trade and, and just spent my time doing that and, and competing in motorsport. But it was actually after many years of competing, you know, it was actually joining UHA, who's a keen golfer, that got us back playing again. So we started playing some golf around around the world, wherever we could. And, um, you know, that started my interest up again. And, and, you know, now I'm retired. Of course, golf's taken over again. Brilliant. So you've gone from mm. professional golfer to professional co-driving to back to being professional golfer. Well, I know. I think professional is probably, a, you know, it's, it's probably too strong a word. I, I would say... Let's just put a keen amateur. Let's leave it at that. I think, I think um, you know, as you get older in life, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to be able to perform like a lot of these youngsters nowadays. I mean, when you see a lot of the kids, even the kids at the Rolls and Monmouth Golf Club, 
you know i think i think your physicality gets in the way of of goal of your swing a little bit but you know i'm, I'm my putting's come on fantastically since since i joined you and and that's made a big big difference to me and i've locked almost two shots off my handicap this year so and, and i put a lot of that down to to, to my putting so uh, thank you ollie I'll pay you later, Nicky. Don't you worry. <laughs> well, it would be it would be it would be a shame that we didn't speak about it at least. But you know, I, having competed at the top level of motorsport, Ollie, you know the pressures that are involved in rallying. You know, it's more or less a life and death situation. It could potentially be, you sure. know, where when I was in the passenger seat and the driver was there, you're paid to go as fast as you can possibly go. And it's not like a racetrack. We don't have gravel traps and crash barriers or anything like that. When you're in the wilds of Argentina, out in the bush in Africa, you know, where there's no bridges, there's not even any roads in most cases, just tracks made by, by, by vehicles once in a while. To, you know, the forests and the icy roads of, of Sweden and, and the treacherous roads of Monte Carlo. An accident is very real it's a big possibility but i never thought about it because at the end of the day i had confidence in my ability and confidence in the driver and that thought process helped me a lot in my in my golf that the worst case scenario in golf is nowhere near as bad as it is in rallying you know if you did have that accident so what's the point in worrying about it? There isn't, you know, just, yeah. I, I think when it came to the putting side of things, that putting, you know, the aim point, picking your, your spot, picking your line, aim to that point, putting, putting a nice stroke on it. Once you've got the confidence in that, I don't even think about the outcome. I don't think about it because there's no point. You know, at the end of the day, if you've got it right, it goes in. If it isn't, you're never going to be far away. And, you know, you can look at the professionals in this game, you know, and they've got a lot of confidence, but they don't sink everything. But I have to say that it's, you know, using that rallying worst case scenario situation, playing golf is, should be enjoyable, not, not, um, how can I say, you shouldn't worry about it anyway. Life just, or death, yeah. It's, it's a really yeah. interesting uh, thing. I've never really sort of appreciated that with you, Nikki. That you know, yeah, your job was like on the edge. You know, if you mm. like, or life would. If you if you if you made a mistake, you could be off the edge of a cliff. And uh, I didn't know you sort of thought about golf in that way. That well, Christ, it can't be that bad. So, uh, so that's no. uh, really good. I think a lot of golfers do. You know think it's life and death golf what advice perhaps could you give them to to deal with their emotions a bit better on the golf course i think i think to be honest just think of the worst case scenario in life really and and that just brings you back to reality that golf is just a game and the only person that gets in your way is yourself and i have to say that you know as long as you've done your work, done your efforts, and you've practiced your stroke, that's as good as it can be, and you've chosen your line, just take that putt, 
take that swing and hit that shot and just visualize where you want it to go and don't worry about the consequences. And generally, everything will more or less end up in a reasonable position. It's only when you start to really panic and think, don't go there, don't do this, don't do that, does it generally happen? Sure. Because if I, if I thought twice about co-driving in that fashion, I could have killed myself or the driver. Do you know what I mean? Because that information I'm feeding you of what's coming up ahead could most definitely have caused an accident. And I think that it, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I use that analogy. And, and, and I have to say it, it's served me reasonably well, to be honest. 100%, 100% on and off the golf course, isn't it? You know, it's yeah, exactly. You don't play off free handicap without, uh, you know, having a very good mind, and uh, you clearly have fr from that work. Do you think that a lot of the conference of saying, you know, just trust it and hit it comes from the the preparation beforehand in the conference and the, the hard work sort of happens before the, the rally or before the shot? Um. Yeah, I think so. I think it is. And, and, and really, when you think about it, putting the long game is always going to have a lot more complexity about it than putting is. But putting is really a very important part of, of your game. But it's actually the simplest. It's the easiest if you're hitting the ball. The, sh the stroke is so much shorter. You know, the control is much, much easier, you know, and, and the rest is just picking the right line, reading the slope, feeling the slope. And once I've got that aim point, bang, that's it. That's all I'm focused on. Right. I'm hitting it on that line and I know exactly my stroke is in a good place. I just need to put a nice stroke on it and just keep your head still and bang. And, and my patting, honestly, it's a source of frustration to my, my mates that I play golf with now because we have a you know, there's always a big head-to-head -head competition between us in a, uh, sort of in a weekly club competitions. But, you know, I've taken a fortune off him this year in just, you know, playing for a couple of quid on the card. But it's it, like putting and short games saved me so many times this year. And, you know, a little bit more effort next year. And I'm sure it's going to get even better still. But really, nothing can be simpler. Nothing can be easier in golf than just not worrying about it, picking your line and hit it with confidence. Bang, that's it. Happy days, happy days. It's simple, simple. Simple stuff, simple mm. stuff. Nick, just going back to the preparation for a rally with, you know, Kankin or Colin McRae. Uh, we, we sort of, we have touched on this before and I've been absolutely amazed by how many staff or how many employees there were on each rally at different places doing different things hmm. talk us through what a preparation for a rally might look like and and how would that link to perhaps a practice round for a pro or or just an amateur golfer going to a, to a round i think with a rally i mean with a professional uh, player i mean even a, a top flight pro wouldn't play in every tournament if there's 48 rounds of the pga tour for instance you know, a top player probably wouldn't want to play in any more than 15, maybe 18 events, taking all the majors into account as well, because there's a lot of work and effort that they have to put into it. With us in, in rallying anyway, you know, a lot of our event is preparation for that particular rally. 
the surface that we're we, we're on, and every surface is different from country to country. It may be gravel, but the gravel is different in Australia to what we find in Cyprus Rally, to what we find in Finland, to what we find at the forests here in the UK. It all has its speciality, and we have to find the optimum setup in differentials how they work and how they operate and how they grip to the tire and the tire compounds and how we cut and the tire to allow the tread to get down through the mud and slippery surface on the top to get to the hard base below getting the suspension right so it's soft enough to get grip but hard enough that we can get some stability in the car which is really important on high speed stuff so a test for us could be uh, two, three weeks before the event, of which it could be, yeah, of which it could be two or three days, um, of which then we, we then find the, the right car setup, and everything is timed. So we're, we're 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 timing exactly what we're doing on that particular piece and section of road, so we know if we make a change and it's quicker, we can see the differential in the time. And then it'll be the same with tires. We, we, we're finding the optimum tire. But then once we found a good tire, then we have to then look at what the longest stage of the rally is. And then we do an endurance run on that tire to see how it performs over a given distance. And, you know, that then is then built into our rally car, of which we then would arrive, like if we go back probably to Yuha's days or reconnaissance was like two weeks um, and that sort of slimmed down over time but we go over the stages two three four times and then we're making detailed pace notes of the route so the driver has got his system that he would use to describe every corner the severity of the corner the breaking points the length of the straights and then you'd fine tune those after every pass. And then come the rally, once we finish our reconnaissance, which generally would have been in a kind of a modified road car with, with protection underneath, of course. And then we'd see our rally car. We do the shakedown, which is just a, a chance for us to shake down uh, the car, which is brand, built brand new for that event. So we just make sure that no nuts and bolts are gonna fall off the thing and make sure the settings are correct. And then that says us done. We're then into the rally itself. And off we go. Love it. Love it. And, and you know, an event, oh, you, we'd probably have up to 100 people. And, you know, in the earlier days, 100 people on an event, masses of vehicles, helicopters with mechanics flying around, two really? motorhomes, yeah, 15 service vans, six tire trucks, four mechanics, cars, two chase cars, um, you know, and, and, and all that for effectively running two to three cars. I mean, it was a, it was a big operation, big operation. It's a big old operation, isn't it? Mm. When you, when you sort of talk about the shakedown, you know, the night before, did you ever feel sort of nervous before a rally? No, not really. No, I, 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 no, I can't say I did. I mean, I, I just took it in my stride, really. Um, you know, 
I think it would be more nervous excitement more than nervous. Yeah. I think it was really looking forward to it and getting things, you know, up and running and get out there and, and do your stuff. If you were nervous, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't be able to do it, not to the level of performance that we had to achieve. You just had to relax and just enjoy what you were doing. And it was everything would just flow beautifully, you know, and, you know, co-driving in a rally car, it's, there's, there's lots of different jobs that it entails, very strict timetable we have to follow. So we have time cards and timing procedures with controls at certain points, which we had to check in um, on time. But then from the driver's point of view, the big thing was the reading of base notes and how somebody would read those base notes is also quite important. So somebody that's nervous, scared, bit high pitched, and from a, from a driver's point of view, he's listening to that. And it's coming over like, my God, this guy, he's a bit hyper, you know, God, am I driving too quickly? Am I driving badly? Have I got him on edge? You know, and then mm. your performance in the passenger seat could affecting what the driver was doing from his point of view. So I think just a cool, calm, sort of nice intonation where you needed it if it was something bad coming up you throw in a care caution whatever it may be got it and then it's all just cool and calm and it was that's the way a good relationship works and um it certainly helped me through my career anyway that cool and calmness that you had going into the event you know on the start line is that something you learned over time or you trained or do you think that's like I don't know your your personality and it's just just the way you are I, I, I think I improved the, 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 the more I did effectively I always felt confident in what I was doing um, and I think that electronics that we have the intercom systems in the car and in the helmets became better and better over time and that helped with that cool and calm kind of delivery because you could hear yourself a lot better and um but i definitely did improve as time went on how did and you improve nikki i think it was just understanding a lot more um realizing the effect of how i co-drove how i said things would have an effect on the driver and you know, they were very conscious of, you know, what you were doing in the passenger seat. They could see you sat there. They could see you holding your pace notebook. They could see you, if you were dancing on the foot plate a little bit, a bit nervous, they could see all of that. So it's just a case of just be calm, just be cool. And that's the way I went, went through it. And, you know, when you've got that sort of, delivery of base notes then the driver thinks yep i must be doing well i'm in control i'm driving really well yep this is going well and and you know i felt that it had an impact at the end of the day to what the driver did interesting did you mm. ever change the um tone of your voice in a car do you recall anything ever going oh god <laughs> saying something you shouldn't have maybe well yeah i mean if you're having 
if you're having an off or something, then you've got to go completely off script because, but generally it was always the driver because the driver knew before me as the co-driver because you, you are basically focused with your head down a lot of the time, concentrating on that page and feeling where you are on the road through the seat of your pants. So at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, the driver knows first. And, you know, he'd throw out, oh, shit. Or if it's a real bad one, it would be, oh, fuck. You know, and then, <laughs> then you just got to hold on, you know, because it's out of your control. There's just nothing you can do. We were just, both of us were just passengers at that point. But, you know, you'd be surprised that in those given situations, if something out of the out of the ordinary would happen, these drivers have got so much ability and probably 99 times out of 100, they'd be able to manage the situation, control it as best they could, and at least the off wouldn't be as bad as it could be. Sure. I think, I think a lot of people, when you look at accidents on the road, generally a lot of people's accidents happen because they overcompensate for a situation. Sure. You know, with, where these guys would just give it that little bit, just a little bit of opposite lock instead of people, if they have a big slide on in a road car, they give it too much lock. And of course, it's overcompensating for the little slide they've got. And then next minute, it's flipping back the other way. And then you've heard of a tank slapper, haven't you, Ollie? You've probably had one or two of those, I expect. <laughs> I should imagine so, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, when I see that, you see people off it's only because they overcompensate but these drivers are really special and i was very fortunate to see the capability of a top class rally car with the best tires with the best engine transmission with the best drivers on the some of the best roads in the world and uh, it really was a pleasure to behold superb yeah superb just um just one more on that um sort of dealing with pressure and staying calm did you with your time with those guys ever have um i don't know life coaches mental coaches psychologists working in the team or did you ever i don't know seek help or was it you know you or colin was there help out there there was help if you wanted it but we never we never needed it with with colin or with you are i mean you know, we were confident in our own ability and, and it was absolutely fine. I think, I think if you're the right way out, is that the right terminology? Yeah, I think the right way out. I don't think there's really any need for a psychologist. When I look at top flight golf now, and when I look at the pros that are out there, it's always the same ones that are there at the front. The difference between those and the guys that are struggling to make the make the cut are very, very similar in their abilities. Mm. It's just the guys at the top just have that extra bit of confidence that just puts them on a different stratosphere. And then that difference means such a lot to your overall score. And when I think of myself co-driving with a top flight driver, you're on the last stage and you're one second in the lead and you know that you've got to push it to the limit to actually come out of that stage and win the rally. 
Did it affect what I did? It made no difference to me whatsoever. Did I think about it? No, I didn't even think about it. For me, it was just a case of just do what I needed to do, and it happened. And I think in golf particularly, I think there's a lot of youngsters out there that probably lack that confidence in their own ability. Mm. And those guys, I can understand, need that extra bit of help. Sure. Because I think the problem is you've got too much time to think about it on a golf course, haven't you? You know, when you play in the 18th hole, you've already finished the 17th putting out, you know, and then you've got a lead and then somebody else is teeing off in front of you and, you know, it's the last hole and this is it. I've got to get a par to win, you know, and there's water down the left and out of bounds on the right and you're watching these two guys in front of you hitting left and hitting right and, you know, you're stood on the tee waiting to go and all of this emotion and everything is all building up inside of you. But for us, you know, I'd never even thought about it. Even though we're driving up to the last stage of the rally, even on the start line, once we've got the helmets on and we've gone through the time control and we're waiting for the car in front to start and then it's us next. Never thought about a thing. I just relaxed in my own ability and, and it just helped me dramatically. Interesting. I find that absolutely fascinating and like hard to believe. And I don't mean that I don't believe you in just it's incredible that you have that, you know, that calmness because you you talk about walking from the 17th to the 18th. That for me is like going from stage to stage when you've got Mm. 10 minutes to think about, Oh shit, we are in this position. Call, we need to hold on to this one second lead. Do you know what I mean? I see them to be very Mm. similar. What do you think that, like top athletes, you know, the two we're, we're talking about there, you know, Kankan and McRae, what makes them different to all the other thousands of rally drivers? Um, I think in Yuhar and in Colin, they were two naturally talented drivers. Yeah. Other guys on their day were equally as fast but they had to work hard to be fast. These guys inside the car made everything feel like slow motion. Hmm. You know, nothing was a panic. Everything was controlled. You know, the car would be set up in for the corner. It would come in with a big slide, but it's all controlled. And that natural ability does make a difference. You know, when you have to work hard to be good at something, that's where it becomes difficult. And in golf particularly, especially nowadays when there are so many good professionals, so many good guys that are not even going to make it from the Challenge Tour to get even to the DP World Tour, let alone to go to the PGA in America. And I think, you, you know, there's so much stake for these guys. You know, they are in a position where they have to make the cut to get some money. Hmm. If they don't get the cut, they don't get anything, but they're already out of pocket. At least for us in professional motorsport, the manufacturers paid our wages. It didn't matter where we finished in the rally, first, third, 10th, or we didn't finish the rally at all. It made no difference to us. And I think that has an element of calmness about it because we weren't affected financially quite so much. But 
I think anybody, anybody that's seriously talented, I think if you're going to get into the sport, you must put everything to the back of your mind and just enjoy the moment. And I think, I think that's so important. That's really so important, you know, but I, I do feel, I do feel sorry for these guys that really are exceptionally talented and they can't let themselves go. Is that the right that must word? be in let rallying as well, though, Nikki. There must be a lot of you talk about being at the top of the game. So if you crash, it doesn't matter. But if you crashed, you know, if you didn't finish a rally, you wouldn't have a job next year, would you? There is a bit of that, you know. Unfortunately, the nature of the sport, the nature of the roads that we we competed on, you know, these things happened, you know. It was a part of being quick and being fast. I think if you continually crashed and kept crashing, you know, and didn't turn in any results, then you'll be under serious pressure. Mm. And contractually, you know, they could get rid of you. But, you know, if you were paid, if you were paid a reasonable amount of money to, to perform and you did perform and win some rallies along the way and and got a good string of good results, then the team are always happy. And, um, you know, while, you know, we can make mistakes, so can the team, because we are just one link in a long chain of, of competitor, of people within that team who all have a, an influence on the result, because if the car broke, breaks down, you know, that's as equally as big a failure as us crashing out on a stage trying to go faster. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a tough world. It's a tough world. Tough world and, you know, and, you know, I've had some, some seasons where it's just not gone well at all. And, you know, we, we started with Ford Motor Company in 1999 and it was the focus at that time was a brand new road car that had long been launched and they wanted us to use this car and, the pre-build up to Monte Carlo rally was not going very well at all. The car had hardly run. Our testing was disastrous. The suspension was too hard. It wouldn't handle. We'd have oil leaks on the power steering and then a fire. And, you know, we were out before Christmas then back home for Christmas, going back out between Christmas and New Year, doing some more and then something else happened then going back for New Year, and then going back and doing more testing. And, you know, it took a lot of effort to get the car into a position where it started to work. Um, but that particular year, 1999, we retired 10 times, I think. Wow. Uh, and extremely frustrating, you know, having done all that testing, um, done all the reconnaissance and everything else, then to retire 10 times, it was horrendous. And, and I always remember going to China, Rally of China. It was a new event, started in Beijing. And the first stage was only a short one, six kilometers. About three kilometers into the first stage, there was a, a right-hand corner which went over this rounded, flat, but rounded boulder into a hairpin left corner. We just took the line that a couple of cars in front of us had taken. We went over this rounded boulder, which was nothing. And bang, something broke in the front suspension. 
and we just pulled straight on at a hairpin and retired on the spot. This was on stage one. About four cars later, our teammate in the same car takes exactly the same line as that we took and exactly the same line as the cars took after we passed. Bang, exactly the same thing happened again. The front suspension broke, he pulled on and parked by the side of us. So we'd gone all the way to China. They'd flown these rally cars there. There was all the guys sat in the service park and we hadn't even completed one stage. And that was it, guys, let's go home. And all it was, was a badly machined bolt in the suspension that was done incorrectly. And it just fractured and broke. And it just shows that how important everything the engineer does, everything that machine shops do, everything that the mechanics do is equally as important. But you could imagine going all that way, doing all that work, and retiring after three kilometers. God, it was frustrating. It must be, uh, yeah, really hard. And it's coming on to my next question, really, which is talking about how you deal with sort of failure or like not finishing a rally. So one of the sort of memo, my um, memorable moments of the rallies was in 2000, when I think you had a lead going into the last um, stage. Was it against Richard Burns and you crashed out? Oh, yeah, we were leading the championship. 2001, it was. And, 2001. Um, yeah, we, we, were, we were leading the world championship quite comfortably. And all we basically had to do was just probably finish in front of Richard Burns. And probably we didn't even have to do that. We could have finished one place behind him and still won the championship. And, um, yeah, in the end, you know, Colin pushed too hard. and. Uh, after some foggy piece of road where, you know, historically Richard's pace notes described the road far more accurately with Colin's pace notes were very much based on the feel of what he could see. And when he couldn't see, then the pace notes kind of lost, not lost their way, but they didn't give him as much speed as Richard Burns notes did. And we came out of this foggy section and then his pace started to pick up a little bit. And then, you know, a kilometer further on, it was complete carnage. The car was basic, the car was completely destroyed. We had a massive clipped a bank on the inside and it corkscrewed us upside down. And we had this massive accident, you know, rolling and rolling and rolling down the road. And, you know, for us, that was the end of it. There's no way we're gonna go any further. And then we, we just had to sit back and see what happened with Richard Burns. And from that point on, all he really had to do was finish in the top few places, which he, he did do. And he made sure he got to the end and he did enough to win the world championship. Um, and that was probably the last throw of the dice for Colin and I, which at that time we didn't know, but we never had an opportunity to win a world championship again. But, you know, did it make a difference? I would say probably, yeah, it was upsetting at the time, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the end of my world, put it that way. At the end of the day, we'd done a great job to that point, and I thought I'd done a great job to that point, and just Colin just pushed a little bit too hard. 
And of course, the disappointment was not just for us, for me, it was a bigger disappointment for Colin, but also the team who put so much effort in throughout the year for it all to be thrown away at that point. That was quite tough. How did you sort of deal with that? Um, I, I was okay about it. I was upset for a, a little while, but, you know, it wasn't what that did you long. Do? Uh, just went home, had a bottle of wine, and because we were only in Cardiff, so it was quite close to home. Yeah. So I just went home and had a bottle of wine. I thought, right, I, I wanted to get out of Cardiff. I didn't want to be amongst everybody. So I just got out of the way and just followed it on the um, on the internet and you know basically just waited to see what had happened and it was you know after a couple of days it looked quite obvious what was going to happen that Richard Burns, a fellow Brit, was going to win it and if we weren't going to win it then you know I was glad that that he was going to win it you know and um, at the end of the day we just started thinking about the new year and before we knew it we were off to testing for Monte Carlo and Swedish rally the first two rounds of the year in sort of late November early December and the process just starts all over again um, and and you just put it behind you Ollie really no dwelling on it and just got on with it there's no point it, it's not going to bring it back you know, just, just focus on the future, really. And I think um, at the end of the day, golf is a very similar thing. You know, we're very quick to we're very quick to think about the bad shots when we need to hit a good shot. And you'll forget all your good shots you've hit, but you'll always remember the bad ones in those clutch situations. And I think, you know, I've, I've kind of learned from that, from my rallying a little bit. And I always think about the great shots that I've hit here, there and everywhere. But sometimes the old sort of negative energy start to, to get at you sometimes. But, uh, you know, I do, I do enjoy the challenge of golf in a completely different way. But it's not life or death. That's the thing. Not life or death. No, that's good. Mm. So in 2002, you... Um, Split up with McRae, and yeah. there was a, dis a few disagreements, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. What was yeah. Uh, the disagreements? Um, I don't know. I think, I think at the end of the day, Colin was a very winning was important to him, and I think it's a bit like. A driver-co-driver relationship is very much like a caddy, a caddy and the golfer scenario. Sure. That that the golfer will always get rid of the caddy to try and bring him something else that his previous caddy couldn't bring. And and I think this happens a lot as well in rallying a little bit. When things don't go so well, the driver just wants to have somebody new, somebody fresh. In this case, at the end of 2002, we'd had a, an off on a corner in um, New Zealand, which at the end of the day, you know, that was probably the icing on the cake for Colin, you know. I mean, it, it was his fault why we went off. It wasn't my fault. And, Did he um, think it was uh, his fault? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was no. <laughs> you think there was so? No doubt it. The onboard, the onboard footage showed that. You know, um, so you know, it wasn't a case of the co-driver not saying anything, and you, know, you read the corner, and that was it. But I think you know, he'd spoken to his dad, and they'd been concocted a plan, and they brought back his old co-driver again, that I took over from. What uh, six, seven years earlier. So at the end of the day, he came back and he only had a season and that didn't go as well as it would have hoped anyway. And, you know, at the end of the day, it gave me some free time to do other things. And I got involved in some television work and did some punditry for American television for the World Championship, as well as working for um, the actual promoter as well. And, you know, I enjoyed that time off. Um, but we did have the opportunity to get back together again. There was some opportunities. Colin only had one more year as a full-time driver. Um, and in 2005, we were able to come back and drive for Skoda, who had been sort of serious competitors, but never had a driver that could help them develop the car and bring the car on and drive it to its full potential. And we came back and did a bit of hard work. We went to Rally GB and, and we had a, a reasonable result there. But then we went to Australia and we were on the verge of the best result that Skoda had ever had. We were gonna finish second on this rally. And um, unfortunately the management um, I, I think it was probably a management issue that they, the engineer, we didn't have the, the proper engineer. We were, we were the leading car. Their full-time driver was nowhere in the standings. We were way ahead of him, but they gave us the understudy engineer, not the main engineer. And he made a mistake by not changing a clutch because the data said the clutch was good. The, but the other driver, they did clutch change no matter what, because they knew they'd have to do it. The engineer didn't change it. We did the first two stages of the last day. And all of a sudden, the data said, oh, shit, this is not going to work. This, the, the clutch could wear out in the next two stages. And again, the management didn't step in. Instead of bringing the really good mechanics that were on the more experienced mechanics, let's say, on the other car to bring it in to change the clutch. They let these inexperienced guys do it. And it was all a bit of a panic because it was a pressured situation. They only had 20 minutes to change it, where if they'd done it the night before, it would have been 45 minutes and it would have taken the pressure off. And in the end, we retired in the service park. Mm. And that was it. You know, the, the whole service park had emptied all these other rally cars had gone and left but then all the teams were stood in the walkway behind our service bay and when these mechanics had finally done the job after some issues they started the car put it in first drove it a little distance switched it off and they all the mechanics just run into the back of the workshop and were so ex upset and I'd never seen so many grown men cry hmm. as that day. They, was, they were gutted that all of a sudden 
their the results, the best result the team have ever had, had gone. And but it, the problem started the night before. But that was very frustrating. That was frustrating. I felt I sorry think. for them. I felt sorry for them. It wasn't the it wasn't the end of our world. You know, we'd won that rally a few times before. But for these guys, when it meant such a lot to be thrust into that position, bloody tough. Difficult. Mm. And, you know, you sort of brush off there that Colin McRae, let's be honest, like one of the best, if not the best, ride driver all the time sacked you. How did you deal with that? Obviously, you kept busy with TV and stuff like that. But you're, you're telling me, like, emotionally, that didn't mess you up a little bit, Nicky? No, no, it wasn't too bad. It I mean, surely it's like a big dagger in the, like a big... You know, it was initially. It was initially. Must have hurt. Yeah, a little bit, and and it, and it, they didn't handle it very well either. I think they could have handled it a lot better if they'd spoken to me about it, and we could have at least had a proper discussion about it. But at that point, I'd already had thirteen years at the top end of the sport as a professional. My career was already a lot longer than so many other people that have come and gone before me with other drivers. And I'd won like 21 rallies and I'd done over 150 rallies of which over a hundred were podiums. Do you know what I mean? I had all the stats there sure. and, and, and it was fine. I think if it had happened within a 12 month of me joining him, then I would have been upset because you probably wouldn't have co-drove for anybody else ever again. Yeah, but but as it was, I'd had a lot of experience up to that point, and you know I'd had a great time in the sport. I, I'd been sort of at the top end for you know ten years. You know, having the best of everything, best hotels, best travel, and and I was quite happy in that, to be honest. Mm. And and it, it didn't it, it didn't really affect me too badly. Amazing, amazing career. Mm. Um, just uh, to finish off with Nikki, can you? Uh, obviously, it was very sad in 2007. I think it was when the helicopter the crash happened and, and Colin mm. passed and with his son. Um, I, you've told me a story of uh, Colin golf courses, beers, and buggies. Can you share yeah. that story with us? That's I think it's yeah. a nice way to finish. Yeah, well, you know, we we. Colin was not a golfer and we did, it was a rally with Skoda. We did Wales Rally GB starting from Cardiff, finishing with Cardiff. We did it with Skoda and we finished the event. But then after the event, I was having the Nicky Grist Golf Classic, which was effectively a charity uh, golf day um, where Colin came along and we had a, a big dinner in the evening and, and we had a, um, a comedian as well with us uh and he was going to have a game of golf i said you sure he said well it can't be that difficult can it i said oh this is this is not an easy game so anyway a friend of mine who was a, a pga pro at that time said oh i'll play with him because he knew colin reasonably well so the only way he could hit a ball was by doing it like happy gilmore where he could run, he could run and hit the ball, but it was, he'd managed to hit it some shape, but it wasn't always consistent. 
But what he did really enjoy was the golf buggy. So, okay, it was Cottrell Park was the golf club, and I do apologise to Cottrell Park now. And I know it did cost us a few thousand quid for damage and stuff to this buggy. But this buggy had been put through hell and back. He lifted the seat and he found out that there was a governor on the engine. So he worked out how to release this governor by using a T-peg in here and this elastic band and pull it there. We could take the governor off. But they were taking this thing. They were launching it over bunkers, jumping over bunkers. No messing around on the greens. But if there was some nonsense there, they were into it. We had this professional photographer who came from motorsport. Well, they terrorized this photographer. He was in his own buggy and he was there flicking through all the, the photos that he has. Next minute, this buggy appears over the top of the hill, T-bones this guy right in the side, flips it up sort of halfway over. But that was calling for you, you know. I mean, he, he while he was a very serious competitive driver he was also a bit of a social time bomb and you know there was there was there was good and there was bad in our relationships but there was a lot of fun as well and this particular day he loved it and he had such fun and you know we had a big party the night before as well uh, the night after sorry in, in Cardiff and uh, yeah it was uh, it was one hell of a hell of a golf day I can tell you my God, we drank some beer and you know, 300 quid's worth of sandwiches delivered to the room after because we were all starving. Uh, it, went from <laughs> one it went from one extreme to another, but it was good fun. Brilliant. That sounds like a golf that I'd like to be involved with. But uh, yeah, yeah. Nicky, I really appreciate your time. Um, really wonderful to talk to you. I uh, hope the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, it's been great to sort of, you know, hear through your career and relate some of that to golf. And um, mm. now you've got your motorsport business, um, which mm. is selling a lot of uh, nice products for, for sort of fellow rally rally drivers and, and racers. Um, as you can see on I, your shoulder there. Yeah, I've got oh, my stylo should. helmet here. And one <laughs> thing I just want to finish with is, on Wikipedia, it says that you've got a motorsport business and you sell stylo helmets. You're the UK distributor and you've sold helmets to the likes of Peter Solberg or Petter Solberg, Ken Block and Sebastian Loeb. So I was wondering if you could ring them up and get me added to that list. <laughs> well, listen, it's only Wikipedia. You need to add your name to it. You don't oh, need I can to add it myself, can I? Yes, yeah, yeah. Please do, Ollie. Okay, that I'll add, add my name to it right now. That will bring in so much trade for me. That will be unreal. Absolutely, absolutely. Nikki, once again, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, mate.